Thank you. Thank you. It's very good to see you, dear friends, my friends in the Fellowship of Mere Christianity, uh, friends City Church. Very grateful to you, Dave, for hosting this and all those that have helped you. Uh, you've ever put on one of these, you know it's not an easy task. So I'm very, very grateful. Stephen, I'm very grateful to you. Wasn't that just marvelous music? Musically excellent, but also, and even more importantly, God and Christ drenched. Thank God for that. Thankful to my friends uh, Bray and Mamie for allowing me to stay in the Sandlin Suite and the Henson Hilton. I worked on that for a while. I had to say it. I'm focusing attention this evening on uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone. This actually is not the most important uh, dictum of the Reformation, the glory of God, as Dave indicated. The glory of God in Christ is most important. But I believe in order, sola scriptura should always be the first one that we deal with. Why? Because our knowledge of the others flows from this one. If we get the Bible wrong, we'll get the others wrong. In fact, if we get the Bible wrong, or if we neglect the Bible, we soon won't have any Christian faith at all. I want to start by suggesting what sola scriptura does not mean. What sola scriptura does not mean. First, it does not mean that the Bible is man's only authority. The Bible makes clear that God establishes subordinate human authorities, Valid authority under his sovereign authority. God, as it were, deputizes certain institutions to carry out his will. This is why God says in Romans 13 that if we resist civil authority, we resist God's authority, his ordinance. Now, we live in a time obsessed with individual autonomy. Autonomy means self-law. Ours is an era deeply resistant to external authority of any kind. In other words, we live in a culture of rebels. Now this includes aversion to civil authority like police officers, family authority, church authority, employer's authority, teacher's authority, and much else. Social commentators often declare that our society is skeptical of all institutions. This is actually just another way of saying that people resent authority. That's what it really means. This is obviously the case in our wider society. Disrespect for police officers, disobedient to school teachers, disdain for employers. But it's true even among Christians. I know of Christians in our internet age that rarely skip a chance to digitally attack pastors and elders. Their own pastors and elders. They're constantly at war on church leaders, despite what the Bible teaches in Hebrews 13 and elsewhere about respecting church leaders. 
Oddly, some of these lawless men pit the Bible's authority against the church's authority. Yes, some churches do abuse their authority, but we mustn't forget that it's the Bible that validates church authority in the first place. If you believe the Bible, you must believe in church authority and other specific human authorities. Uh, Second, sola scriptura does not mean that church tradition has no value. Paul himself wrote uh, that the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, should keep the traditions they'd learned from him and from others. The reformers weren't the enemies of church tradition. They affirmed the early ecumenical orthodoxy and the creeds. They recognized the church fathers' formulations of the Trinity and the two natures in the person of Jesus Christ. They accepted the orthodox definition of the canon of the Bible, the 66 books. They weren't trying to reinvent orthodoxy on the anvil of their own depraved speculation. Put that line in for Pastor Ron Smith, who really liked that line when I used it in my writing about 20 years ago. They knew they weren't the first people to read the Bible, and they didn't think they understood the Bible better than everybody else who read it before them. But, and here's the key, they weren't willing to allow tradition to be a coordinate authority with the Bible. Scholars have offered a shorthand way to understand the views of the relation between the Bible and tradition at the time. The Roman Catholic Church held that both the Bible and tradition were, in effect, equally authoritative in the church. Let's just call that tradition two. Tradition two. The radical reformers, Anabaptists and others, wanted to get rid of all tradition and appeal only to the Bible. Let's call that tradition zero. The Protestant reformers wanted to retain tradition, but only tradition that could be justified by appeal to the Bible. This is tradition one. And I believe this is the correct view. Sola Scriptura, then, is tradition one. The best definition I ever read of Sola Scriptura is by John M. Frame. So succinct, you could write it down, or you could remember it. Quote, Scripture and only Scripture has the final word on everything. Full stop. And by everything, he means everything, not just in the church and theology, but also in love and friendships and science and architecture and music and economics and farming and information technology and everything else. Of course, the Bible doesn't touch every possible topic. It doesn't give us the square root of pi or the location of ancient China. But it does give us the truths by which we're to approach and interpret these topics and all others. And the Bible has the final word on this and everything else it declares or implies. This certainly seemed to be Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament. Jesus didn't quote the Jewish scribes or other scholars' interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus quoted the Old Testament in the account that was so well read for us, three times he put Satan to flight by citing the Bible. 
In the first temptation, Satan presses the Lord, hungered by a prolonged fast, to use his divine power to turn the stones to bread. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 to make one momentous point. Not, not that bread equivalent to food in the ancient Near East, bread equal food, is unimportant. But that the word of God is designed to sustain man in a way just as powerful as physical food sustains us physically. It's one of the most forceful statements in the Bible on the Bible's necessity. From the lips of our Lord in Matthew 4.4. But it's not chiefly an affirmation or a doctrine. It's telling us how to live. So tonight, just briefly, in the remaining time, I'd like to come at this topic from an unusual angle. I'm not going to offer a sort of theological defense of sola scriptura. Rather, I'd like to suggest how we're called to live in terms of it. So my topic tonight is sola scriptura living. Sola scriptura living. Sola scriptura isn't just a theological proposition. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of living the Christian life. I suggest tonight that one reason the churches in our nation are so anemic, so atrophied, so accommodating, is that our leaders and members don't live sola scriptura lives. What does it mean to live a sola scriptura life? First, sola scriptura living demands mastering the Bible. Now, I thought about it and deliberated, and I chose that word mastering after much thought. Today, we're inclined to think that most of the Bible knowledge that Christians have, they should get at church, maybe Sunday school, and of course, in particular, the Sunday sermon. But as I thought about that command that Jesus quoted, that man should live by every word, every word, that proceeds from God's mouth, it occurred to me that we can't live by every divine word if we don't know every divine word. I believe that uh, the Orthodox Christians uh, in recent generations were were much more biblically literate than those in ours. Churches made a conscious attempt to give members an intense familiarity with the Bible. I choose that language well, too. Intense familiarity with the Bible. Even small children were taught Bible stories by that very old pre-digital visual method called flannel graph. Does anybody here remember flannel graph? That was just amazing when the teacher would put up the next item. Oh, it was just remarkable. I couldn't wait until the Bible teacher, she put up that very next flannel graph item. This teaching includes what we might consider some of the less well-known parts of the Bible, the, the serpents in the wilderness, Shamgar and his ox goad, Jesus and the demon-possessed Gadarene. In sermons, the preacher or teacher could reference these and other accounts and just assume that most of the audience would know what he was talking about. Why did so many churches instill such extensive and intensive knowledge of the Bible? 
I'm confident it's because they knew that people couldn't obey the Bible if they didn't know the Bible. We've uh, suffered a subtle shift in the last few decades, and I'm not talking mainly about the accommodationist churches and sermons like Five Keys to a Happy Marriage or Seven Tips for a Successful Life, messages you could as easily get at a Tony Robbins weekend. We expect that of the accommodationist churches. I'm referring to Bible-believing Protestant churches. We have seen a revival of doctrinal preaching, and that's superb. But many of these same churches have people who know the creeds and confessions of faith, but aren't that familiar with the narratives and accounts in the Bible. Many of the children are catechized, but the catechism isn't a substitute for a knowledge of the Bible. If you are short on time and must choose between catechizing and teaching the Bible, by all means, teach the Bible. Recall this. God's people are to live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. We can't live by it if we don't know it. How do we remedy this omission? Well, first, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Leaders, encourage your congregation to read the Bible every day. There's no excuse for not reading the Bible every day. I realize emergencies arise at times, but 95% of the time, there's time to read the Bible. If you can update your Facebook account, you certainly can read the Bible, can't you? Even if it's only a single chapter daily, reading familiarizes us with the Bible. You can listen to the Bible on your iPod or while commuting to work. Yeah, if you have time to post to Twitter, you have time to read God's holy word. It's our duty to teach our children the Bible. If they know uh, Minecraft, but not marry the mother of our Lord, if they know more about angry birds than Moses' anger with Pharaoh, we have our work cut out for us. I myself can still recite verses I memorized in our Christian school half a century ago. Children remember what they're taught, especially what they memorize. Help them to memorize the Bible. Teach them it's so vital because it's the very living Word of God to us. Incidentally, did you notice the language of Deuteronomy 8.3 that Jesus quotes? God's word proceeds from his very mouth. I'm sure this refers specifically to the law verbally given to Moses on Sinai, but it's just as true of the rest of the Bible, even if by metaphor. God inspired his servants to write the very words that he wanted. They weren't secretaries taking dictation. He used their own talents, their own vocabulary, their own life experiences. But he worked in their lives in such a way that what they wrote as Scripture, they wrote exactly as he intended. The words of the Bible are the words of God as if spoken by his very mouth. What a treasure we have in the Bible. The very words of God. If you could hear God speak, would you listen? 
John Frame writes this so beautifully. Imagine God speaking to you right now as realistically as you can imagine, perhaps standing at the foot of your bed at night. He speaks to you like your best friend, your parents or your spouse. There is no question in your mind as to who he is. He is God. Would you want to hear what he says? If God were speaking, would you want to hear God speaking? Well, we do have God speaking. God, as it were, right in our presence, speaking to us. If God speaks, wouldn't we strain to listen to his every last word? The more we read the Bible, the more familiar we'll be with its contents. In time, our life will be what we might call bibline. Bibline. That's how we can describe the lives of Jesus Christ and many of the apostles. They knew the Bible so extensively that it was almost second nature to them. Jesus' life was suffused with the Bible. And not just because he was the Son of God. In his humanity, he had learned the Bible from his parents and in the synagogue as a child. If you want to see an example of a Bibline person in more recent times, look no further than the great Victorian preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London Baptist preacher. If you read his sermons, you'll perhaps notice something very curious. He makes offhand Bible references, allusions to people and events in discussing this or that topic, and it seems as though he hadn't even premeditated about it. He was just so familiar with the Bible that its stories and teaching became a part of his mental and verbal architecture. This can happen in only one way, reading the Bible and reading a lot of it and reading it a lot of the time. I'd like to suggest that if we're not prepared to make this a goal, we're not prepared to live as biblically Christian people. To live as biblical people, we must know the Bible. And we cannot know the Bible unless we're familiar with it, and we can't be familiar with it unless we read it. Second, sola scriptura, sola scriptura living, sees the Bible as our spiritual sustenance. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from God's mouth. Bread sustains our physical life. We can do without a lot of things, but we can't do without food. God's made our bodies to require food in order to survive. God told his people in the Sinai wilderness, and Jesus verified in the Jewish wilderness, that we're spiritually sustained by the Bible. Sustained by the Bible. The the metaphor of the Bible as food is found several times in the Bible. Peter writes that we should long for the milk of the word so that we may grow. We read in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, that the Bible contains not just milk, but solid food that will make Christians mature and strong. The prophet Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. 
I have a question. Do we have a voracious, a voracious spiritual appetite? Do we love to sit down and just read the Word of God? And if not, I would ask, why not? The use of this metaphor, of course, is almost self-evident. The Bible is God's instrument for preserving our spiritual life, and not just preserving it, but enhancing it. The opposite is also true. If we don't have contact with the Word of God, if we don't consume it, we'll never grow as Christians and we'll shrivel, shrivel up into spiritual non-entities. Church leaders, you men of God here, if you want to be truly great men of God, do great exploits for God, you must be a man of this book. You must be. The Word of God, operating by the Spirit of God, creates in our hearts great faith in God. That great faith leads us to do bold things for Him, to preach the gospel to the unconverted, to trumpet the truth from the pulpit, to meet the deepest needs of members ensnared in sin or addiction or doubt or despair, to stand for biblical truth in an evil culture, to declare the law of God to antinomians and the lawless in politics. Men of God, saturated by the word of God, do great things for God. I'm going to say that again because it's so truthful. Men of God, saturated by the word of God, do great things for God. We'll lack spiritual strength to win great victories. Great victories for the Lord if we are spiritual anorexics. And the same is true of church members. And that's why we can't assume they can grow and mature by Sunday sermons only or by church fellowship meals or other legitimate programs. There's great emphasis on community today in the church, and that is a good thing. It's because our culture is attacking traditional communities, notably the family. And churches, thank God, are providing the community. But the Christian community requires the Bible if it is to be strong. So Bible studies led by competent teachers and rigorous Sunday school and even a revival of Bible conferences. Are there even, are there even Bible conferences anymore? If not, that omission is most telling. These will produce mature, strong Christians. If you want to know one prime reason Christians are so weak today, why they fall easy prey to Satan's temptations, why they doubt and despair, why they can't respond to the arguments with the fashionable village atheists, it's largely because they don't know the Bible. They don't read it, and they don't study it, and they don't memorize it. Therefore, their spiritual life withers. We can't be strong, mature followers of Jesus Christ if we neglect the Bible. Third and finally, sola scriptura living seeks the Bible for its verdict on any issue that confronts us. The New Testament theologian Leon Morris notes, for Jesus to have found a passage in the Bible that bears on the current problem is to end all discussion. Jesus the Messiah quoted the Old Testament three times encountering Satan's temptation. 
If the Son of God found it necessary to thwart Satan by appealing to the Bible, you imagine maybe we should? The Bible is God's inspired and infallible word. He reveals to us his will for our lives and for all of creation. We can't know right and wrong in any sufficient way apart from the Bible. We can learn important basics of God's creational uh, norms. Nature is a teacher, but we can't know of redemption. We can't know of the ministry of Jesus Christ or the Spirit of God. We cannot know God's will on many matters just by looking at creation. We need the Bible for that. The Bible reveals God's will on matters as diverse as food and economics and sex and politics and music and warfare and education and farming and parenting and grandparenting and thinking and emotions and reading and love and sickness and much else. The Bible contains truth on these and many other matters, but we have sadly trained ourselves to read around these passages, to read around those passages. We want to quickly get to Psalm 23 or John 3.16. But recall that we are to live by every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's no doubt that our Lord's death and resurrection are the heart of the Bible. But there's more to the Bible than the heart of the Bible. And we won't know with certainty what's right and wrong if we don't have an excellent grasp of the Bible. An excellent grasp of the Bible. Many Christians don't even know that the Bible requires that adult children provide financially for their parents. They don't know that the Bible forbids intercourse during a woman's menstruation. They don't know that it insists that we pray consistently throughout the day. They don't know that it demands restitution, not prison, for crime. They don't know that it severely warns against mistreating foreigners and widows and orphans. They don't know that it requires an invading army to first seek peaceful terms of surrender before attacking. How many Christians know these and many other matters are a part of the Word of God? Of course, there are certain matters in the Old Testament designed to be fulfilled in the New Testament. The point is that we won't know what is fulfilled and what persists if we don't know the Bible. And if we say that matters like these are unimportant, I ask, are we required to live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth and not just the allegedly most important ones. Scripture, and only Scripture, has the final word on everything. When faced with any judgment, any decision, our first question must always be, what does the Bible say? Directly or by implication. The Bible won't tell you explicitly where to move, but it won't permit you to move to a place where you can't be a part of a faithful church. It won't tell you which specific job to take, but it will require you to take a job that won't require that you sacrifice your biblical convictions. It won't tell you which car to buy, but it'll tell you that you must buy a car you can reasonably afford without putting undue pressure on the rest of the family. <clears throat> but answers to many of the great social controversies of our time are quite clearly 
revealed in the Bible. All extramarital sex is wrong. Full stop. All homosexuality is wrong. Your neighbor may not be coerced into paying your medical bills. Women are required to carry their own genetic children in their own womb, not somebody else's womb. Sending women into combat is barbaric. To neglect the poor is to assault God. The answers to most of the overarching social issues of our time are found in the Bible and often found quite readily. The problem isn't that the Bible isn't clear, but rather we often dislike what it clearly teaches. Physicians, surgeons, scholars, psychologists, therapists, counselors, scientists, other experts can often provide us invaluable information relying on God's creational revelation. The Bible doesn't teach that all knowledge necessary to us is contained in the Bible. But it does teach that the Bible is the final word on everything. So everything everybody says and does is to be judged by the Bible. Now, if we deem this formula overly burdensome or overly simplistic, what we're really saying is that Jesus Christ didn't quite mean what he said to Satan. That man must live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Every verdict and every judgment in every decision we render must be judged against and operate according to the word that proceeds from God's mouth. And that word is inscribed for us in the Bible. In conclusion, when we read and then saturate ourselves by the Bible in submission to the Holy Spirit, the Bible, as it were, becomes second nature to us. Biblical wisdom will shape our decisions. It won't be necessary constantly to look up Bible verses. The Word will become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We've hidden God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. If we continually read the book of Proverbs, for example, let's say reading the particular proverb that corresponds to the day for the 31-day month, 31 chapters in Proverbs, we'll likely soon find that our everyday decisions brim over with biblical wisdom because we become bibline in our thinking and living. We cannot saturate ourselves with God's word under the power of the Holy Spirit without our lives becoming a bibline lives. To do this is to live the sola scriptura life. Sola scriptura is not simply a reformation dictum. It is or should be a way of living. Let us pray. These are weighty and deeply convicting truths, Father. They're weighty and deeply convicting for me. And I trust for many of us here. Lord, as a result of this meeting this weekend and these great Reformation truths that will be articulated, revive in us first, O God, a love for your word. We're going to hear about Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Christ and all he's done for us. And yet, and yet... We find out about it in your word. 
Oh God, fill us with your spirit so that we can understand your word. Illumine our minds and hearts. Oh God, may we be truly dibline people. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. In his name alone we pray. Amen.